What a blessing. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke. You're already in a different spot. I understand that. You can put one of your markers in there, put your bulletin there or whatever, but turn, if you would, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. I want to read some verses out of Luke to you. Um, I want you to look at your Bibles a lot this morning, and so um, I might step down and, and, and talk to you a little bit closer because then I won't forget things uh, as much because of the platform. We understand that, but Luke chapter 19, beginning here in verse number 28, um, tells us the story of the Palm Sunday scenario. And many of us are unaware that today is Palm Sunday. Many of us know that it is. Um, many of us perhaps know that it is, but what is it? And so I hope I can help you understand a little bit more concerning uh, this particular truth. I always think when I turn to this passage about what A.W. Tozer said. Um, A.W. Tozer said that if present Christianity, present-day present Christianity was poison, it wouldn't be potent enough to kill anyone. And if it were medicine, it wouldn't be potent enough to heal anybody. So it's interesting that modern-day Christianity, I think, is weak, um, not trying to be judgmental, but being truthful. And a lot of times it's because we're not going back into the Scriptures like we need to, and uh, not necessarily on Sunday mornings, but on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning and Friday all week long to be in the Scriptures, to be able to see what the Bible says. I appreciate the crew that's here on Tuesday nights. They're hungry for the Word of God. There are people in the class that maybe are new believers, don't understand much about the Scriptures yet, and there are people there that are highly skilled in the Scriptures, and to be able to put us together in one room on a Tuesday night, and then to have the comments going back and forth, uh, to me, um, I sleep the best on Tuesday nights, because I know that what we're doing on this corner, God gave me this responsibility of this church. I'll do the best I can to take the Word of God and be able to teach it and have others teach it to really uh, help out the, the future, if you would, of this particular generation to help us understand, too, that it's important to understand what's happening here. And uh, many of you know the story. Many of you have heard it. Uh, but I want to read to you, beginning in verse number 28, we're in, we're in Luke chapter 19, and it says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending to Jerusalem. So he's going upward to Jerusalem, and his mind is thinking about the cross, because he knows it's coming. The Lord Jesus Christ was moving from Jericho to Jerusalem as far as our geographical understanding. And as on the way to Jerusalem, it says in verse number 29, and it came past when he was come nigh to Bethage and Bethany, um, at that at the mount called the Mount of Olives, you saw that this morning in Sunday school class, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And then they went and sent, uh, uh, they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat, uh, set Jesus thereon. 
And as he was, went, went, they spread the, the, uh, their clothes in the way. When he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount Olives, uh, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice uh, for all the mighty works that they had seen. One of the mighty works that they seen, uh, of course, was the raising of Lazarus. Um, I've never seen a dead man rise again especially after he's been dead for four days. So I don't know if you have either, but there was a generation that saw that. And so they were amazed at this. And again, for the works that they had seen. And they saying, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. But he's coming in the name of the Lord. And that word comes is very important because it's actually mentioned in other places. He's saying here, it comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But of course, some of the Pharisees from among the multitudes said unto, unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Isn't it amazing that Pharisees always want to say something? That's, I think, what duct tape was made for. We should change the name and say Pharisee tape. Hand me some of that Pharisee tape. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. This was not just anybody entering in. This was Jesus Christ entering into the city of Jerusalem. And their desire was to take their garments and throw in the way. You can actually read it in other places in the Bible. It has other places where this is documented. And John, when John wrote everything, and John is not part of the Synoptic Gospels, but John, in his according, wrote a little bit more than the average. He's writing, we, we say he's writing to the world because he said, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son. So he's the one that tells us that there was palm branches that were put down in front of Jesus. Um, we, we understand that these were put down to make, to make the path uh, the pathway for peace, that they knew that this was Jesus Christ. They were saying, Hosanna. They were at, crying out to him, Lord uh, of the highest, and so on. And so understanding that a little bit better, that, that in the Old Testament, they would take uh, palm branches and they would take willow branches and, and weave them together to make huts, if you would. Um, Old Testament, uh, giving that opportunity for the families to be there using those two items uh, we know that, that, that the willow tree uh, is, represents the, 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 if you would, um, sad times. We call it the weeping willow. If you look at one of the willow trees, we got one on our property. I look out over the pond, and it kind of just looks like it's got its head bowed. And, uh, but when they're mentioned in, the, in, in Revelation, it's talking about the palm branches, which is victory alone, uh, that there's going to come a day when there'll be no more sorrow, no more covid Difficulties. I got to be careful. I said when I walked up here, don't say anything about COVID. Just lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I will just keep focused on the scriptures. But in this particular passage is showing us that they were recognizing him his, as the king. Look what it says in verse number 38, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse number 13, the Bible records that they would throw their garments down uh, as the king, of course, Jehu, um, 
2 Kings chapter 9, verse number 13, it says, And then they hasted, and they took every man his garment, and put it under him uh, on the top of the stairs, and blew with the trumpet, saying, uh, of course, Jehu is the king, a sign of loyalty. It was a sign of submission, a sign of respect and reverence. I thought it was interesting that this particular passage that we're reading is actually mentioned all the way back in Zechariah. Let's look back there. Now, if you go to Matthew, all you got to do is go back two more books, okay? So you go to Matthew, and then just go back. Malachi is the, 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 the next book to the left, uh, Minor Prophet, and then Zechariah. Let's look at Zechariah 9.9. Because what's happening in Zechariah 9.9 is happening 500 years prior to the part that we just read. That's what's so wonderful about, about the scriptures. Anybody who tells you that the scriptures are not accurate, they're lying to you. The scriptures hold every single, every single thing that we need. And the Old Testament actually explains the New Testament. It's interesting how we can look back in history and see what is actually happening. Uh, we're talking about the messianic prophecy in our class. And we said something this morning, of course, in the, in the Sunday school, the video that actually presented Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But look, if you would, at 9-9, Zechariah was one of the minor prophets. Zechariah had more to prophesy uh, of all the minor prophets, I always say that Isaiah is the major of the major prophets, and Zechariah is the major of the minor prophets. And for some reason, he was the younger, but God gave him more to say. And if you were to do the prophecies of Zechariah sometime and read through it, it would just bless your heart for what is being said here. And we look at verse number 9, if you would, at chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes unto thee. So there we go, that word comes. And so the king is going to come unto thee. Um, singular, uh, the word thee in the King James Bible. Um, if you don't have a King James Bible, you ought to get one. It's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful book, um, and it has the, the truth in it. Now, it's not talking, whenever you see you in the scripture, we're talking about plural. But here it has thee, we're talking about singular. And so, behold, thy king comes unto thee, uh, specific, you. He is just, that's talking about righteous. If you look up the Hebrew word for just, he's talking about pure, holy, impeccable. And so this particular truth is that, that, that um, uh, the king is going to come unto Jerusalem, and he is just and having salvation. And that word having, he's talking about having it singularly alone, having salvation with him. Their salvation is only in Jesus Christ and none other. Jesus doesn't need Mary. It was his mother, yes. In a way, he needed her, her, of course, in the early years. But for salvation, for saving you, Jesus needed nothing else besides himself to save you. That's what the, that's what the verse is basically saying here. But he is lowly, uh, and, and I thought that's interesting, too, because it's dealing with the meekness and how that he's coming. So it gives a description of him. It just in verse number 9 here, 500 years before he came, pretty accurate, because we can point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is salvation. And he actually comes lowly, talking about riding in on a donkey and riding upon an ass and upon the, the foal of an ass. The foal is basically a colt or, if you would, uh, uh, um, an animal that's less than a year old, 
uh, or, or so. And, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ came upon. Now, when we're talking about this story, it's wonderful, but, but who is he? What does the scripture say concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and how is it that we can look at the scriptures and find out in detail who he is? And so I chose Psalm 24. If you turn your Bibles then to Psalm 24, this is a song, by the way. The Psalms were sung many times, and that's why the word Selah is mentioned. And uh, the word Selah there is, is a word that actually going into another section of the song where you can lift it up a little bit. Uh, I heard that Selah means uh, bring it up an octave. Uh, so I, I talk like I know music, right? I have no idea what an octave is. Uh, I thought it sounded like a car or something. I own a Ford Octave or something. But it means to lift it up, Sela. Maybe we could actually have a Ford Sela. Wouldn't that be cool? But anyway, just a thought. That's how my, my mind works. But this particular psalm is giving us an understanding that they, they sung this. So I did a little research on it. Psalm 24 is a, a hymn. What a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Someone wrote this magnificent hymn was probably composed and sung on the occasion of the removal of the ark of the house from Obed-Edom to the city of David and on Mount Zion and is based upon the event that took place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so it was a day of excitement and victory. This mountain city noted by its ancient inhabitants as well fortified, it was selected by the conqueror as the seat of the royal residence and the center of the religious worship. After having overcome his enemies, he determined to bring the ark, which for nearly 50 years had been left neglected at kirjath Jerium. It is difficult for us to understand the feelings of the most exalted and intense patriotism that the Jews feel. And they they still have this patriotism, if you would. There's nothing like a Jew holding up the flag of Israel. It's incredible. They have been scattered time after time after time. But they still look to their own land. And someday they know that it'll be theirs again, fully and free, with peace. And that's their longing and their desire. And so, and of the great intense patriotism, of the deepest religious enthusiasm, which would be awakened in the hearts of the people by such event, the king and the priests and the people and the elders of Israel, the captains, over thousands, in solemn procession, And with all the instruments of music and singing, led the ark of its resting place to its resting place, if you would, on the holy mountain. And it was then that this majestic anthem rose to heaven, Jehovah's, Jehovah's is the earth, or the Lord is the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, verse number one. And the gates of that gray old fortress were asked to be lifted up or to lift up themselves and allow the king of glory to enter in. And to speak today of this account affirms that not only did it happen, but the record of it happening has been preserved for us to be able to read it 
on Palm Sunday, 2021. It's amazing to me that we can look back at this event and rejoice with them. And as we're looking at Psalm 24, and as we're going to go through it, I think there are several things to be thinking about. And the first thing to be thinking about is that the Lord is actually being declared, or the King of glory is being declared in these verses. And so the declaration that there is a King of glory is mentioned here, but it's also mentioned throughout the Bible. I, I think of a sermon I heard years ago by Dr. Daryl Champlin. Um, and in, in, in that particular message, he used verse number seven, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. What a beautiful, beautiful sermon that I heard years ago by a man who was so dedicated. He's now with the Lord. That man was a great missionary and a great man, and he taught us many things. But he taught us that simple song that we're talking about trusting the Lord. We're talking about an invitation that actually sometimes I'll go through the song and then I'll quote it for you many times. I'll say it at the invitation time. But it's interesting as we're thinking about this because it helps us understand, first of all, the king of glory is declared. And the king of glory is declared in other places. Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 3, he is declared. And one cries to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house that was filled with smoke. And then said, I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful rendition of the Lord, high and lifted up, where he is at the right hand of God even today. But I think it's important also in Isaiah 54, verse number 5, the Bible says, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Understanding that it is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In Zechariah 14, verse number 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. In Revelation chapter 11, verse number 15, the Bible says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What the Bible is basically telling us here is the earth is the Lord's. It doesn't belong to man. And we can't make decisions like we want to make unless we seek the Lord first. What do you want me to do with your property, Lord? What do you want me to do with your possessions that are being lent to me, that are on loan to me? Help me to understand what I need to do. The Bible goes on to say, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open 
that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servant, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father have sinned. The king of glory is declared in Psalm 24. Verse number one, we talk about the magnitude of his space, if you would. Where does he live? Well, he's everywhere. He sees everything. God is God, and he is present where you are. And those that are present with him, of course, understand that there is fullness of joy with him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It's interesting when we talk about the earth, that it's his. Um, did a little research on how big the earth is. It's the third planet from the sun. And it's the largest of the terrestrial planets. It's, it's really a big planet. But how many miles around is the earth? The circumference of the earth, um, the equator, equatorial circumference, if you would, of the earth, um, is different in, in, as far as going over the, the ends or the poles of the earth. It's different in size. The circumference of the earth is 24,901.55 miles. This is how many miles the earth is as far as round. But things actually get a little more complicated because the earth isn't a perfect sphere. It is actually an oblate spheroid. It's kind of a squished ball, if you would. The earth rotates on its axis, and the regions around its equator bulge out from the center more than it does the poles. But if you measure the the earth around the earth passing through the poles, then it's only 24, 859 miles round. So if you wanted to fly around the earth, the quickest way and the fastest way would be to travel around the poles to go around rather than going around the equator. The earth is the largest of the terrestrial planets, I said, but it's not the largest of the solar system planets. Jupiter is the largest. Just for comparison, the equatorial circumference of Jupiter is 279,000 miles versus 24,900. So Jupiter is quite a bit bigger than the Earth. But we understand that Jupiter and the Earth and all of the planets can be measured by the span of God's hand from his little finger to thumb. The Bible tells us that. The sun is even bigger. The circumference of the sun is 2,720,000 miles, 109 times bigger than the earth. But all of this, our Lord can measure with the span of his hand. Now, I don't know if you have a big picture of God, but... If you understand that God is big enough to record in his word that the earth is the Lord's, this is a big God in a small earth. And we think we're really big because we can send strange things to Mars. I got a few people I'd like to send there. Amen. Yeah. I think I can start a campaign on that. 
And we can tell them, it's really going to be a nice trip for you. Exactly. The miracle of his space kind of blows my mind in a way. And I can actually hop on a plane and I can travel to Singapore and be there at about 16 hours if I don't have too many delays. And I can travel all the way around the world, but what a beautiful sight. What a... What an interesting thing to, to be 30,000 feet in the air and look down to a little bitty ocean and, and realize that our God is already where we're going to go. He is already there. They just got done with their meetings. Uh, they got done with their day, if you would. They're going to sleep in Singapore around the world. But God has already met with them on their Lord's Day. And he is meeting with us now here. It's hard to understand and comprehend that God was with them, but he's with us, and he's everywhere. I was in Lebanon as a Marine, and I would look up into the hills of Damascus, uh, or the Damascus Highway, if you would, and saw the Golden Heights from a distance and got to see all of that. But God is there, and God is here. That's our God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And so not only the miracle of being everywhere as far as the span is concerned, but also not the space, but the substance of the earth. So the miracle of his substance. It says in verse number two, for he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. So all of its matter and material are under the sustaining power of God. Nothing happens by accident. All of it is being held together by God. Any kind of gravity that we have, and the distance we are, of course, from the sun, and all of this is measured out, God is in control of all of that. And you know how quickly he could wipe it out? Our God is God. He can do as he chooses. Sometimes we strut around like we're really something. You know how puny you are? And you know how ridiculous you look when you're trying to strut your stuff? Seriously. Oh, people, we are so prideful. We think we know better. We think we have a better education than people. We think we have more skill than people. We think we have a better race than other people. That is so sad. Its productivity and its resources are all in the hands of God. Sometimes I'm amazed at how many trees they're taking down. And I was up north last week in Wausau, and I saw paper plants in different places with trees outside. And you can just see all of them coming in, even on ships and coming in on the railroads. And all of these incredible, large Oak trees coming in like crazy. And different types of trees. None of that would happen if it wasn't for God. All of its recipients and inhabitants with all the magnificent beauty as the sun rises and glistens upon the creative hand of God. And it sets upon the wonders of his species. 
as some wake up in the middle of the night to go and do their thing, and some lay down in silence when the sun goes down. It is all in the hands of God. I'm a hunter. I'm an outdoorsman. And it amazes me to see the creation of the Almighty God. But the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We gasp at his forces and we see the fury of nature and we wonder at his mystical laws and we are amazed at the minerals and the treasures that lie beneath our feet as we walk upon the earth. And I think of the wonder of it all as he can pick up a tree and throw it. He can take a house and just remove everything except for the bed where people were hiding underneath it. That is our God. He is awesome. Far beyond comprehension. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So God sends rain and sunshine. And so the trees and the fields stretch out in thanksgiving. And sometimes you'll watch the corn bow down and give thanks as it gets higher and higher. And then it will reach up as, in, as if in prayer, saying, we need rain, and then God sends the rain. There is always enough for both mankind and for the animal kingdom because God is in complete control. The roadkill is increasing. I mean, look at the animals along the side of the road. It's because we, we drive too fast. I'm using the word we because I'm involved in that. But sometimes if we think about it, we see that there are animals that have done nothing wrong. They're just going to go from one place to the next, and then they're hit on the side of the road, and we think, oh, my goodness, there's just too much roadkill. Did you know that God allows every single animal to be born? It's God's doing. Sometimes the DNR thinks, well, we're going to help the, you know, the, the deer increase by making up these guidelines and these rules. Well, you know what? If they're having a meeting without prayer, they're just playing a game. Because God is in control of all of these things. This is the God who loves you, by the way. This is the God who woke you up this morning and was hoping that you would have a little word with him before you came and met everybody. This is God who wants to have a personal relationship with you. And then it deals with the mortality or the, I should say, the morality of his subjects. Look at three and four. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in this holy place? Who's going to really have fellowship with him? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, and who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So the question is clear. Who will have fellowship and walk with God? It's mentioned here. Dirty hands describe the unclean, and clean hands point toward that which is or is not pure, having dirty hands or clean hands. It is not enough just to be clean on the outside, but it must be, and you must be, clean on the inside, clean of heart. This is where the righteousness of Jesus Christ is both provided and offered. He has not sold his soul to the temporal things and he, or, or chosen the perishing things today. Instead, he has chosen Jesus Christ to be his Savior. 
those that are pure of heart. Understanding that Jesus Christ holds tomorrow eternity in his possession. Spurgeon wrote this concerning the passage. Truthfulness in heart and lip is demanded by God. He goes on to say, God will have nothing to do with liars except cast them into the lake of fire. And every liar is a child of the devil and will be sent home to his father. A false declaration, a fraudulent statement, a crooked account, a slander, a lie, all these may suit the assembly of the ungodly, but are detested among the true saints. And how could they have fellowship with God, the God of truth, if they did not hate every false way? In order to have fellowship with the God of heaven, I must live a life of truth. And I'm appalled at how much, how many times one politician can lie in five minutes. It blows me away. And then for the media, the little puppets to go ahead and just say those lies and say as long as they get their $150,000 a year, they're fine with telling lies. I'm so thankful for the house of God. I'm so thankful for God's people that we can get together. And sometimes there's mistrust among us because we live in a world of mistrust. And so that would be a natural thing. But you set that aside and realize that if you're with believers, you can trust them. They love you. They care for you. They're not after you. So the goal of all should be lining up our lips to where our heart is and guard our hearts with all diligence. Out of it comes all the issues of life. And then five and six really have the mention then of the seekers In verse number five, it says, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah, lifted up an octave. But then we're talking about the king of glory, and these particular verses just thrill me. Lift up your hands, all ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. In Genesis, the king of glory is the seed of women. In Exodus... He's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In number, he is the cloud by day and the pillar by fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. And in Ruth, he's our kinsman and our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In First and Second Kings, he is the Lord our King. In First and Second Chronicles, he is our reigning King. And in Ezra, he is our faithful spouse, 
In Nehemiah, he is the builder of broken down walls. In Esther, he is the Mordecai. In Job, he is our redeemer. And in Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. And in Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our lover. And in in Song of Solomon, he is our beloved fair one. And in Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the balm of Gilead. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. And in Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Joel, he is the Holy Ghost baptizer. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our foreign missionary. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he's God's evangelist. And in Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. And in Zechariah, he is the fountain open in the house of David. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he's the Messiah. In Mark, he's the wonder worker. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he is the son of God. He is the eternal word. In Acts, he is the foundation of the church. And in Romans, he is our justifier. First and second Corinthians, he is our sanctifier. In Galatians, he is the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he is the Christ with unsearchable riches. In Philippians, he is the God that supplies all of our need, even and more so our eternal joy. In Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is our soon coming king. In First and Second Timothy, he is the mediator between God and man. And in Titus, he is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And in Hebrews, he is the blood of the everlasting covenant. And in James, he is our great physician. In First and Second Peter, he is the chief shepherd. In First, Second, and Third John, he is love. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with ten thousand of his saints. In Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The King of glory is called many things throughout the scriptures. But he's also called Jesus, our Savior, our friend, our helper in the time of need. He is desiring for you, no matter who you are, to come to him. And he will be your friend. And he will love you. And he will save you. If you humble your heart, he will be yours. Who is the king of glory? He's the king of splendor. He's the king of brightness. He is the king who we honor today as we come to gather to worship our majestic king. And there is but one. His name is Jesus. And his kingdom is unfolding, by the way. And he's sifting out the true hearts. So don't be weary, dear friend. Draw closer to him at this time. Personally cry out to him. And he will help you. I think it's interesting in verse number 7 because we see his presence. In verse number 8, we see his power. 
In verse number 9, we see his plea. In verse number 10, we see his position, that he is God. It's interesting because we're talking about a king of a different kind. As the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of the villages and said, I must needs go to Jerusalem. Go before me. Get the donkey and bring it to the front entrance. And I will sit upon it. Some think maybe he didn't straddle it, but he sat with his legs to one side. But however he sat upon it really doesn't matter. He did rest upon the colt or upon a foal, if you would, of a donkey. And he did come up with no army. He came in meekness. Open the doors. Let the king of glory come. They're crying out to him, Hosanna, there's no army. There's just people like you and me. There's no necessity for horses or spears. It's Jesus uh, lowly coming to his people, wanting to enter in. Every step he took across the Kidron Valley at that particular time, from the Mount of Olives and from Bethany up into Jerusalem, he was saying, I'm going to come but I'm going to come upon a donkey, lowly, in the spirit of meekness. He's coming to you right now if you're willing to receive him. He's not going to force himself upon you. You may have some slobbering, loud pastor preaching to you at times and thinking, oh my goodness, he doesn't have to scream. But our Lord doesn't come that way. He's got a still, small voice. It says, open the door. Would you please open? Why haven't you opened it yet? I've done everything for you. The eternal door to your heart, to open it up and say, Lord, come in. My friend, just being raised in a Christian church doesn't make you a Christian. Just being told everything's okay as long as you do what what is right, you'll be all right, is not being a Christian. The definition of a Christian is someone who has been born from above and born again. And if God can save a drywaller's son who has issues, he can save you. And let me tell you something about this. I have seen lately trials upon the hearts of men, and it's evident now that they've never trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They rested upon what they did rather than what Jesus Christ has done. They, They rested upon perhaps what other people told them rather than to allow the Holy Spirit to come in. Interesting when Jesus talks about knocking and calling out and asking and seeking in the prayer about how that your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. Come to Jesus and open up your door and he will come in. The King of glory is coming to you. Will you open? Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Do you remember Do you recall the day that he came in?
If you do not recall that, then it's time to be saved. No more just being good. It's time to be saved and born again. It's so simple. We come to the Lord with our hands and say, Lord, these are dirty and I can't clean them. And only you can do it, Lord. And really, it's a sign of my heart because my heart is stained with sin. And I can't remove that stain, but only you can do it through your blood. And maybe this morning you just acknowledge who you really are. And he'll agree with you. Because you're agreeing with him. That it's time for you to be saved. Maybe you're watching today at home and your eyes are open and you're on looking at the screen. And maybe you sat there and thought about this personally. That you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. It's time to call upon him today. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Maybe you're already born again, but this message puts you a little closer to God spiritually. And you need to make some decisions here today. Maybe it's just to come forward to an old-fashioned altar and pray. That's what it's for. Maybe it's for church membership. Maybe it's for baptism. Whatever it is, you come this morning. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand to your feet? We're going to give an old-fashioned invitation like they used to. And if you need to come, come. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide in this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.